I'll be reading our sermon text for today from Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative word of God to us. Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that which might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. God, we thank you for these words put to paper by Mark, instructed by Peter, and inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we need your word to shine light into the dark areas and recesses of our hearts, because we don't truly understand the depth of our sin. And we need the gospel promise found in your word to place all of our hope and all of our assurance in what Christ has done for us, because we are so quick to forget. We submit ourselves to your word and to your spirit today. Do your good work in us, we pray. Amen.
Well, if you have been with us for the previous 18 sermons now in this series from the Gospel of Mark, you've undoubtedly started to notice that the Gospel account places a strong emphasis on this dynamic of clean versus unclean, of pure versus impure. In fact, in my study of the gospel, before we started in this series, I had picked up on this theme. I I looked back, I had made some notes about this, but I don't feel, now that we're into it, I don't feel like I really grasp the full extent how deeply embedded this tension, this theme of pure versus impure, clean versus unclean, is in at least the first half of Mark's gospel. It's come up, if you've noticed, in just about every sermon, at least every chapter so far in Mark's gospel. We've encountered it in our discussion on baptism from the opening chapters of the gospel. We've seen it in those possessed by impure spirits, in Jesus' healing of the leper, in the hemorrhaging woman, in the dead body. And today it comes up again as Jesus and his disciples sit down to share a meal together. You see, the Pharisees had taken this Old Testament practice of washing and they amplified it to create this vast and extravagant network of rules and procedures that one must follow in order to properly, cleanly, purely eat a meal. Hands must be washed in a proper manner. Every item that's used in preparation, like cups and kettles, must meet a certain standard. And even the couches that they would recline on as they ate their meal had to be wiped down and cleaned in a certain fashion in order to be used and to maintain cleanliness. Now let's be clear, none of those things in and of themselves are bad things. It's good to wash your hands before you eat, right? That's a good practice. If I come to your house for a meal and you give me something to drink, I'm hoping that the cup that you give me has been washed since the last time it was used. These are good things. The problem wasn't with the procedures or the practice or the tradition. The problem was that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law assigned spiritual value to something that only has temporal value. And so Jesus in our text is going to respond to this accusation. We find the accusation leveled against them in verse 5, where it says this. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands. The practices were good. The tradition was good. The problem was that the Pharisees assigned spiritual value to that which only has temporal value. As Jesus responds to this allegation and then subsequently is going to follow up with his disciples in private about the matter, he's going to accomplish several things. First, we see Jesus reveal human hypocrisy. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus replies to this accusation. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were making a really big deal about the disciples eating without washing their hands. Just like they made a big deal about Jesus doing all of what Jesus has done. They were angry about Jesus eating at the home of a man who was clearly a sinner. They were angry about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. They were angry about Jesus' disciples picking up some grain as they walked through a field on the Sabbath. They were angry about the things that Jesus said and about the things that Jesus did. On the outside, they appeared to be holy. They said all of the right things. They did all of the right things. They checked every single box. They had a detailed checklist for holy living, and they made sure that they aced the test. But the problem that we see in the Word today is that they were taking the wrong test. They had concocted this elaborate system of rules and regulations and ordinances that extended far beyond what God's Word had commanded. They were trying to protect the law of God against abuse, against misuse. And the thing is, they lived their principles. They lived out what they taught. They worked hard to clear each hurdle that they set up. And they especially loved to take that set of principles, that set of regulations, and demand that everybody else follow them as well. And as we see in our text today, they are quick to point out when others don't measure up. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites and then quotes the prophet Isaiah. Let's think about that word hypocrite for a minute. In our culture, the word hypocrite usually refers to someone whose actions aren't consistent with their beliefs. They claim to believe one thing, but then they do something entirely different. Most accurately, though, the word hypocrite means an actor. Someone who is playing a part. This is a harsh accusation from Jesus. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, you are pretenders. You play the part of someone holy, but in reality, your hearts are far from God. You spend your time defending God and defending his law and making sure that everybody else colors inside the lines, but you don't actually even know God. What we've seen is that there's a huge chasm between the way that our gracious Savior treats people and the way that the first century legalists treat people. Jesus becomes unclean in order to heal a man suffering from leprosy. And the Pharisees point and lecture. Jesus loves a man who is far from God and who is mistreating people for his own gain. And the Pharisees point and lecture. Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he heals a man with a deformed hand. And what do the Pharisees do? They point, they lecture. You see the hypocrisy. They boldly proclaim how godly they are, how righteous they are, 
how they have dedicated their lives to the things of God, but all they really do is point and lecture and cast judgment. They don't love. They don't serve. They don't sacrifice for their neighbor. Their supposed love for God is actually self-serving. They're taking the wrong test. What about us? Are we more concerned with a moral code or with hurting people? If the God that you worship is more concerned about, for example, politics in America than he is with someone who needs to be set free from the burden of sin, you might be an actor playing a part. If the God that you pray to leads you to point and lecture more than reaching out and loving lost and hurting people, you might be an actor playing a part. You might be honoring God with your lips because that's the easy thing to do. But your heart might be far from him. As much as we look at these words and like to think that Jesus is just revealing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, we would be fools to assume that those very same tendencies don't exist and come naturally to us as well. This is a mirror for us to gaze into. Is your flavor of Christianity simply about honoring God with your lips and checking boxes? Where is your heart? Is it moved with compassion like Jesus? Is it focused on moral and behavioral checklists like the Pharisees? If you're anything like me, these words cut deep. They hit hard. They lead us to repentance. They back us into a corner. They make it clear that we all need a Savior. Jesus reveals the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the hypocrisy of me. Second, Jesus rebukes those who allow human logic to nullify God's word. Let me say that again. Jesus rebukes those who allow human logic to nullify God's word. Look at verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, you have a fine way. Do you hear the sarcasm in those words? You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Now, this takes a little bit of cultural and contextual background information for us to, to really understand. Jesus brings one example of many possible examples to illustrate his point. But first, what is the point that he's making? He words it three different ways because he knows how dense we are. So, verse 7, he says, They teach human rules as if they were divine doctrine. And then verse 8, he rewords it. He says, they leave the commandments of God and hold on to the traditions of men. And then verse 9, rewords it again. 
you have a fine way of rejecting God's commandment in order to establish your tradition. So what is the example that Jesus uses to drive home this point? It all centers around this Hebrew word found in verse 11, the word korban. Korban is a gift or an offering that has been dedicated and reserved for God. So it was common to take, for example, an animal from the herd, separate that animal, fatten it up nicely, and designate it as korban, as a special gift to the Lord. Or at the time of the harvest, the farmer would take a certain amount of grain and set that aside for special use, to be a gift to the temple, to be a gift to the synagogue. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had created this system in which you could designate, say, your house or your property or your livestock or all of your estate even, and you could continue to utilize that just as you desire for as long as you're living. But it could never be sold. It could never be taken away because it belongs to the Lord already. You are just now the trustee. It's like a deferred gift. This came in really useful because Jewish law also required you when your parents could no longer work to take care of them. And so often this would have meant selling property or making arrangements with your estate, adjusting things to have the resources to care for your aging parents. But the Korban tradition of the religious leaders allowed people to sidestep this commandment to honor your father and mother, which meant caring for them in their old age. And it worked out great for the religious leaders because they inherited a lot of extra property that they never would have otherwise. First century historian Josephus, some of you are familiar with him, he tells us that to cancel Korban, so once you dedicated something as Korban, to cancel it, you had to pay a sizable fee to the priest or to the rabbi in order to get out of your contract. So the religious leaders created this tradition, which makes you look quite holy. It's probably even going to be announced that you had designated all of your property as korban. But the real motivation was not to give it to the Lord. It was an insurance policy to make sure that you could never lose it. Whatever happened, you could never lose your property and your way of life as long as you're living not even if your biblical responsibility to provide for your parents comes up. You couldn't lose it. Human logic, human tradition being used to nullify the word of God. And Jesus says in verse 13 that they did many of these types of things. This happens a lot today. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine this week told me the story of a conversation he had with a parishioner one Sunday morning following the service. The pastor had noticed after the service started, a family walked in that he had never seen before. They were obviously new to the church. They seemed, at least from the surface, to be quite poor. Their clothing was ratted. They, they looked disheveled. And so following the service, as soon as the service is done, the pastor is pulled aside by a respected member of the congregation who says, Pastor, I I don't know if you noticed, we had some trash in church this morning. 
He said, don't worry about it. I'll make sure they don't come back. Now, fair warning that this pastor is much more gracious than I am. If you ever say that to me after the service, I'll be happy to show you the door and make sure you don't come back. Think about that. These people didn't meet the standard of dress, the standard of hygiene, whatever the standard happened to be. They weren't in high enough social class. They didn't look right. Who knows what the motivation was behind that comment, but whatever it is, it's anti-Christ. I'm going to protect the church from those who are undeserving, from those who don't measure up, from those who don't look like me, from those who might defile us or make us uncomfortable. Let's be real. If we think that we're deserving, if we think that we measure up, we're delusional. We need to repent. I've heard these verses applied out of context before. Some have used these words of Jesus to paint all tradition as if it's a negative thing. That's not what Jesus is doing in these words. God is a God of tradition and rhythm and even repetition. Think about the Passover as just one example. God ordained the Passover as this Jewish holy day to be celebrated, and he even reordered their calendar around this day so that they would never forget to observe. Tradition is not the problem, and Jesus isn't attacking tradition in this text. So what is he attacking? He's attacking the practice of setting aside the word of God and elevating our tradition as authoritative. Just like the way that Jesus deals with the subject of money. He doesn't say that money itself is evil. He's open about the pitfalls of having wealth. That having wealth can be a spiritual cancer. He even says that being rich makes it hard for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. That having wealth makes it harder for you to see your need for God. But he never says that money is bad. These two issues aren't necessarily apples to apples, but I think the comparison is helpful. Tradition isn't bad in and of itself. In fact, it can be very helpful. God in his word establishes many traditions for his people in both the Old and New Testaments. One of my favorite examples is the Aaronic blessing that God establishes in Numbers chapter 6. God gives Moses this great, threefold blessing that you hear almost every week as we conclude our service. And God tells Moses, have the priests speak these words of blessing over my people. While many have done away with it, I think it's a beautiful and, and rich theological reminder of the blessings of God, of the grace that we receive only in the presence of God, of the peace that comes only because Christ has come to us. Or I think of the tradition of a church that I spent a lot of time in growing up, Elam Lutheran Brethren Church in Malta, Montana. Each week after the offering is received, like clockwork, the congregation would stand and they would sing the words of the old hymn, We give thee but thine own. Whatever the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. Jesus is not 
telling the church to do away with rich and beautiful traditions that magnify Jesus Christ, that direct our eyes to the cross. It's been said that tradition makes a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Think about that. Makes a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Tradition is wonderful when it serves appropriate purposes, but it's terrible when it becomes the ultimate authority. The Pharisees elevated human systems and rules above the clear teaching of God. And they used it for their own gain. And Jesus rebukes them for it. And then finally in our text we see that Jesus confronts a narrow understanding of sin. Look at verse 18. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. He went on, what comes out of a person defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. The word defiled is one that doesn't resonate in our culture today. The current state of our society is one in which the only true defilement that exists is to cause another person harm. Think about it. The only true sin that exists in our world is to cause harm, to oppress, to abuse authority. Pastor Kevin DeYoung, in his discussion on this subject of defilement, says that, and I think he's right, says that in modern America, even something like, for example, an incestuous relationship, so long as it is fully consensual, cannot be definitively labeled as wrong. If it doesn't hurt, if it doesn't undermine, if it doesn't oppress, if it doesn't subjugate, if it doesn't cause harm to someone, then there is nothing that makes it inherently wrong. That's the prevailing religion of our world today. If you like it, if it doesn't harm someone else, then just do what makes you happy. This is the opposite side of the coin from what's going on in the first century in our text. In the eyes of the Pharisees, everything defiles you. They took this to such an extreme. I don't know if you've heard this before, but, but there were some Jews who even thought that the shadow of a Gentile crossing your property defiled that property. So even if a Gentile walked by and their shadow came across you, you would be defiled. Well, our modern world's view of sin is incredibly narrow. So was the view of the Pharisees. I had a fascinating conversation this week with someone who's not part of our church, and I'm sure they don't watch our live stream, so I'm probably safe to tell the story. He was talking about his dad, and he said something that shocked me. He said, I've never seen my dad sin. I didn't even know how to respond, honestly. My first response was to laugh out loud, but I didn't want to be disrespectful. But I spent some time this week just reflecting on that comment. Let's be clear, those are words that my kids will never say. <laughs> I make sure of that. But it made me think, if, if that's true, if this man in his 40s is thinking about his dad's life and says, I've never seen my dad sin, 
it made me wonder, how does he view and understand sin? Is sin simply never overtly breaking the Ten Commandments? So he's never seen his dad bow to an idol. He's never seen his dad commit adultery. He's never seen his dad murder someone. He's never seen his dad steal something. If we take that very narrow view of sin, then maybe the comment makes sense. I still don't think so, but maybe it would make sense. But the Bible doesn't allow such a view of sin. And Jesus' teaching makes it so abundantly clear that if we only view sin as those big, bad, wicked acts, that we don't really understand sin at all. If we only view sin as overt, outward action, if we only view sin as doing something awful, then we don't really grasp the true nature of sin. And we certainly don't grasp the darkness that exists in our own hearts and sinful nature. Jesus says that cleanliness and defilement is a matter of the condition of our heart, not that which we touch or avoid. Now this is really good news, actually. Not only because with these words, Jesus says that we're free to eat bacon, that's like amen worthy in and of itself, but this is good news because it signals a change that Jesus was bringing about. A change in which we now view our standing before God in an entirely different way. The life of the Christian is one of freedom, Jesus says. Not one of captivity to an unending list of regulations. Freedom to eat or drink anything, Jesus says, within moderation, because those things have no ability to defile us. And it signals a change in the way that we understand sin. In the closing verses of the text, Jesus goes through this extensive list of things that come from within us. This is a sobering passage. Things that flow out of our old sinful nature. Verse 21 and following. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within, Jesus says, and they defile a person. Here's what we find. The greatest threat to me spiritually isn't a corrupt world around me. The greatest threat to me spiritually isn't some temptation that's going to come before me. It's not friends who might seek to corrupt. The greatest threat to my soul comes from within my own heart. As long as we think that the greatest threat to us comes from outside, our time is spent trying to keep the outside clean. And that focus inevitably results in keeping up appearances, in wearing masks so that people don't see the real us, in playing a part. When we recognize that all those things that Jesus mentions can come from within my heart, that I, I was born with the same sinful nature as everyone around us, and that's humbling. It leads me to the cross. It leads me to confess Paul's words from Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, 
who will deliver me, rescue me, save me from this body of death. Your sin is far worse than you'll ever think or imagine. You don't even begin to understand the depth of your sin, the wickedness of your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. The grace of God is bigger. The grace of God is better than you could ever have hoped for, than you ever would have dreamt up on your own. And that repentant heart, that posture, that empty-handed posture before God is exactly where we need to be. It's exactly what is necessary to worship God in truth and in sincerity. It's the key to loving our neighbor selflessly. Jesus reveals our hypocrisy. He rebukes those who allow human logic to nullify God's word. And he confronts our narrow understanding of sin. And in doing so, he gives us freedom and he gives us eternal hope. We're set free from endless rules because Christ perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law in our place. We're set free from trying to save ourselves because we know that we never could. We're set free from running ourselves ragged, trying to avoid everything that could possibly defile us because we know that the greatest threat to our soul comes from within, not from the outside. The cross of Jesus is sufficient. The cross of Jesus is sufficient for your mess and for your sin, and for your hypocrisy, and for your defiled hearts, and for your unclean hands, the cross of Christ is sufficient. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the way that your word speaks to us, for the way that your word works within us. We are grateful for your law, for your law that shows us our sin, that leaves us with nowhere to turn, that brings us to the end of our rope. We're, we're grateful then for the gospel, for the reminder that you loved us enough to take on the punishment for our sin upon yourself, for the hope that we have because the cross is sufficient for my mess and my hypocrisy and my defiled hearts. Lord, work in us that which is pleasing to you. And send us out of here resting in your love and in your mercy and pointing others to find your love and mercy in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray.